At the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And my name is Elena. As real estate agents and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. Hey, y'all, we have a great crime estate for you today, one that actually takes us back 100 years or so to a crime that many people believe is still unsolved. I'm joined today, of course, by two of my very favorite people, my co-host, Alana, and our producer, Melanie. Hey, ladies. Hey, Heather. I'm so glad we're back. I'm so glad for our little hour of podcasting this week. Have you gotten extraordinarily busy? Because I have. We've gone from zero to 60, like super fast. I mean, the spring real estate market has sprung for sure. I sort of feel like it's like one of those... um, one of those videos of like when the doors open at midnight at Best Buy oh, right. and everybody rushes in, you know, to buy the cool totally. new thing. Totally. It's like everybody was waiting for interest rates to drop. They dropped a little bit and now they are pushing through those Best Buy doors to get to yes. houses. Yeah. I, we both like being busy, but it just, it, ease into it'd be great. There's yeah. no ease. Yeah. We've definitely had to have a little scheduling adjustment for yes. sure. So. <laughs> well, yeah. And on top of that, Heather, you've been sick you, and I can hear it in your voice just a little bit. Um, and I think that we've mentioned to our listeners that the three of us have sons who are all applying to different high schools right now. And it's been <sighs> quite a process. And um, we are really fortunate to live in a school and a, uh, I'm sorry, a city and a school district with such great options. You know, where we live, even in the public schools, there's lots of different magnet and choice options that um, that appeal to different students and individual needs. Um, but it's a lot to manage just on top of all of our regular commitments. So, Absolutely. Uh, looking forward to uh, getting, uh, it, it's almost giving us a little bit of taste of college applications and just reminding me that I'm glad we have a few years away mm-hmm. from that. Yeah. You know, my husband and I have joked that like we've spent more mental energy on this high school application process than like either of us spent on high school, college, or even like our decision to get married. Um, (laughs) So it's been crazy. But, you know, as a matter of fact, I actually did all the research for this episode while waiting for my son to finish up one of his tests. So um, we're at least making good use of our time that way. Yeah. So listeners, please send your good vibes because we're all kind of waiting with bated breaths to see what happens with high school. So send us good vibes and um, send us any of your crime estate suggestions as well. We're always looking for interesting stories. Yeah, definitely. And you can email us at crimestatepodcast at gmail.com. And that's the best place to send us your story suggestion. Okay, well, are you all ready to jump on in today? So ready. So this story takes us to Hopewell, New Jersey, and to the estate of famed aviator Charles Lindbergh. So Lindbergh became famous in 1927 when he made the first nonstop solo transcontinental flight from New York City to Paris in his aircraft, the Spirit of St. Louis. A trip of 3,600 miles, an overnight that, like, rocketed him into celebrity. In fact, he was the first Time Magazine Man of the Year in 1928. And his celebrity really can't be overstated, and in the words of biographer A. Scott Berg, people were, quote, behaving as though Lindbergh had walked on water, not flown over it. When he returned from Paris, four million people attended the ticker tape parade honoring him and his achievement. And additionally, his flight and the accompanying publicity ushered in a new era of airplane travel. 
The volume of mail moving by air increased 50% within six months. Applications for pilot's license tripled and the number of airplanes quadrupled. Wow. Yeah. Also, that's a sick burn, what that guy said. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Acting <laughs> like, like he walked on water instead of <laughs> yeah. flying over it. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was that was a little clever. I, I bet the author um, was a little proud of himself <laughs> with, with, with that little expression. But it makes sense if like, you think about it. Like, you know, the fact that Amelia Earhart, we still think and talk mm-hmm. about her today. Like, this was... I mean. Our entire way of being uh, from, you know, even if you don't personally travel all the time, uh, you know, just the sheer fact that we can Amazon that, you know, that communications across the world, the world is such a smaller place really was at, you know, this. And and honestly, it was only 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. It's crazy to think about. Um, So it was after that nonstop flight around the world and then all the ensuing fame that Lindbergh and his new wife, Anne, decided to find a place where they could have some privacy. So they purchased 700 acres of land and built a custom 23-room French country-style stone estate in East Amwell Township, um, which is in Hunterton County, New Jersey. This property was complete with a three-car garage, a landing strip for a plane, of course. And to say it was private is really an understatement. Like even now, the area is pretty remote and heavily wooded and the estates are set far apart. But back in 1932, it would have been almost impossible to find, requiring someone to travel down winding roads to finally reach the Lindbergh property. It was exactly what Charles Lindbergh wanted after all that fame and fanfare of his flight around the world. We still see that today. Politicians and celebrities or anyone in the public eye really often look for homes that afford them some privacy and retreat from being on in front of others. Well, yeah. And if you think about it, like our homes are our retreats, Mm -hmm. right? But if you do live your life in the public, I can see how you would want to have that like secluded space Mm -hmm. to go to. Absolutely. Okay. So Charles and Anne went on to build like this beautiful home on that piece of land. And, you know, while it was very secluded, it also gave Lindbergh access to offices in New York City and the nearby Princeton laboratories where he was given access for all of his research and inventions. You know, New Jersey, for people out of state, often gets a bad rap. But my husband worked for a couple of years in this area, and he actually said it was gorgeous. He said it was so hilly and wooded and he would see so many deers when he would be driving around there. So even though this is not that far from the city, it is definitely a much more secluded area. So yeah, um, my impression of New Jersey completely changed when he was sending me pictures. It's not all Jersey Shore. Uh, no, no, not <laughs> that's at what all. I think of. That's what I think I of. I know that's well. You know, we as Texans should commiserate with New Jersey about a lot of like you know stereotypes um, yeah. from. Yeah, you're right because you know, we are not like the Dallas show I, at I all. Was, I was reading. Uh, I was listening to an Audible book, and you know something was uh, taking place in Texas, and immediately they got a big twang and mm. a big accent, and they were talking all about it. Like, come on. And it was in a city. I'm like, nobody talks like that it, in our city. Area. In, the, in Dallas. But if you go like 20 miles east, okay. like it is thick. Yeah. It, so, yeah, I mean, it's there's a stereotype for a reason, but definitely not in the people I talk to on a normal basis. Well, 
stereotypes aside, you know, this house, the surrounding area, just like you said, Mel, sounds really idyllic. And it was located in Sourland Mountain, which is actually a 17-mile ridge in central New Jersey. Interestingly enough, the highest point of Sourland Mountain is only about 568 feet above sea level, so it's not really that high. But it gained its name because of the way it rises steeply from the surrounding farmland. Now, the exterior of this home was covered in locally quarried whitewashed stone. And the house's main structure features two symmetrical wings, five bedrooms, four baths, and, of course, a servant's wing. Of course. Of course. So the house was finished in early 1932, and the Lindbergh family, Charles, his wife Anne, and their 20-month-old son, Charles Jr., moved in. In fact, they had moved in so recently that most of their friends and family didn't even know that they were living in the house yet. I can commiserate with that because we moved back into our house in May and I still run into people and they're like, oh, are you all back in? And we're like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we've been back in for like nine months. But, you know, you just don't mm-hmm. know sort of those ins and outs right. of things. So on the night of March 1st, 1932, at 10 p.m., the family's nanny, Betty Gow, went in to check on baby Charles and found his crib empty from his second-story nursery. She immediately notified Charles and Anne, and they, along with the other live-in staff who were there at the time, began a search of the home and the estate itself. That makes my heart drop, just thinking about it. And We've all like had moments where we're like, where's our, where's our child? But just because like, they've run off in the store or something, not like from their bed at night. Terrifying. Yeah. I think I've mentioned that like, I always check on my son before yes. I go to bed because I want to be able to tell the police, like, he was there at 1029. <laughs> That's creepy, right? At some point, he gets too old for me to do that. No, I don't think so. I think, I think he's already about, there. It's a lot about you, though. I know. I've, I've started to knock on the door a bit uh, later on at night. Yeah, that's probably a better idea. Have you ever been caught? <laughs> like, he'll wake up. Yeah, like sometimes he's like, like, Mom, what are you doing? That's creepy. Yeah, <laughs> get out of here. Well, but then, yes, there's also times when I catch them when they're asleep. Oh. And there is like, a, you know, and I, I normally take my kids' phones at bedtime. Just, I'm not like sitting there going, I'm just, I just like them to put their phones yeah, up. Of course. Uh, and uh, where one of them might have a laptop, uh, you know, yeah. on in the room. So there's a, occasionally I'm like, okay, it is way late. Mm-hmm. Well, but I think to your point, Alana, like you don't necessarily immediately assume that your child's been kidnapped. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, when the kid's missing, you're like, where are they hiding? What did they stumble into? Um, I'll never forget one time my son scared me to death. And you all knowing him today will appreciate this story. He was probably two and a half. And I, you know, he was easily old enough to climb out of his crib or his bed or whatever. But um I told him to go put on his coat because it was cold outside and we were about to leave. Well, he doesn't wear coats, so. No, or pants. I don't think kids do. They just yeah. don't. Well, even he must well, have hated it. Even at two, two and a half. One would think at two and a half he would just listen to your mother. But, of course, he needed to check to make sure it was cold outside. And so unbeknownst to me, I couldn't find him. I'm, like, going through the house, like, hey, this isn't funny. Come out. I called my husband at work and I was like, I'm about to call the police. Our kid is gone. And I happened to walk through our laundry room and we had this doggy door over to the side and I could see his little feet outside the doggy door. And so he had climbed out the doggy door. But because we lived on a creek, we had one of those electronic ones. So it wouldn't open back up unless the dog's collar got close to it. So he got outside and then was just stuck in the dog run. I know. So 
Anyway, that I digress. Sometimes <laughs> I do that. I'm sorry. And unfortunately for the Lindbergh family, they did not find Charles Jr., um, but they did discover a ransom note on the nursery windowsill, which demanded $50,000 in return for the baby. Now, I think it's important to note that kidnappings were actually really popular in the late 1930s. It is scary, right? And in the book, The Snatch Racket, The Kidnapping Epidemic That Terrorized 1930s America, author Carolyn Cox notes that roughly 3,000 kidnappings for ransom were perpetrated across the country in just 1932 alone. That's, that is crazy. That is so crazy and so interesting. So it it does kind of put a little color commentary on this whole scenario that this was, I guess, a popular get-rich-quick scheme at that era. Yeah, and I guess it would be hard to trace that kind of thing back then. They find this note. The local police are called, and they immediately notify the state police who take over the case from the very beginning. And because of Lindbergh's public notoriety, J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, reached out to the New Jersey State Police and offered them any and all services of the FBI in investigating what later became known as the crime of the century. So, Mel, I feel like you're our resident history expert or your kids are, but I thought the FBI always handled kidnapping cases. Isn't that like nowadays? So apparently that has changed since 1932. Well, I mean, let's be honest now. Back then, uh, kidnappings were apparently so common. There's no way the FBI could be doing 3,000 a year. Now, I don't know. I actually okay. don't know the story. But the, I mean, this was kind of in the infancy days of the FBI. And I don't have a specific date to quote, but um, I'm going to say the FBI was still fairly... You know, Uh, fairly new. That sounds right. So according to the FBI's history on this case, the household and estate employees were questioned and investigated. Colonel Lindbergh asked friends to communicate with the kidnappers, and they made widespread appeals for the kidnappers to start negotiations. Various underworld characters were dealt with in attempts to contact the kidnappers, and numerous clues were advanced and exhausted. So I'm thinking like Charles Lindbergh is reaching out to his friends all over the country like, hey, put this ad in the paper. You know, like what I'm just thinking the logistics of how you try to get people to reach out to these kidnappers. And a lot of um, reports say that like the mob offered to help as well. I mean, everybody was everybody was involved in trying to find this baby. Now, what transpired next can get a little confusing. So bear with me. Remember, the first ransom note was found the night of the kidnapping, March 1st, and it demanded $50,000 in exchange for the baby. On March 6th, a letter arrived for Colonel Lindbergh, which was postmarked from Brooklyn, New York, on March the 4th. The letter increased the ransom to $70,000. What would that be in today's dollars? You know I always look that up. Um, It would actually be about a million and a half in today's dollars. But that wasn't the last ransom note they would receive. A third ransom note arrived at Lindbergh's attorney's office on March 8th. It informed them that they would not accept a third party to be involved in negotiations and that they wanted a note placed in a newspaper. So that very same day, Dr. John Condon, a retired principal from Bronx, New York, offered to be a go-between for the kidnappers in the Lindbergh family and he also offered to pay an additional $1,000 in ransom. You know, I, I have to interrupt because it's very confusing to me, uh, this. Like, they they keep upping the ransom, but they weren't even giving them a chance to pay yet? 
Like, were they upping? That's correct. Yeah, they were. So they were upping it before they even were given a chance to pay. And I was a little confused about this, like, go-between and how Dr. John Condon got involved. But apparently that was pretty normal in kidnappings as you would have, like, like we would call it in real estate, like an intermediary, right? Like you have this middle person that is helping Mm -hmm. negotiate and coordinate between the two. And but a random principal from Brook, the Bronx, who did not know Lynn. Correct. Correct. You know, I feel like that's like somebody who just wants to insert themselves into mm. the uh, the story. I yeah. mean, not yeah. not to um, digress and look, look down upon his uh, interests, but like he had nothing to do with the story at all. So why would he be getting involved? Yeah, uh, you're exactly right. So the next day on March 9th, Dr. Condon received the fourth ransom note which stated that they approved of his being the intermediary in the transaction. And when the Lindbergh family also approved of this arrangement, they gave Dr. Condon that $70,000 in cash and asked him to start negotiations with the kidnappers. And per the kidnappers' instructions, Dr. Condon started negotiating through the, through the newspaper, excuse me, using the code name Jaffe, J-A-F-I-E. I told you, this gets weird and convoluted. So weird. Bear with me. Okay. So two days later, on the evening of March 12th, Dr. Condon receives an anonymous telephone call and then a fifth ransom note, which was hand-delivered to him by a taxi cab, taxi cab driver. The note sent Dr. Condon on a scavenger hunt to find the sixth ransom note, saying that that note would be found on, quote, beneath a stone at a vacant stand 100 feet from an outlying subway station. What? It's I, so confusing. And if these people really like want die their hard, money. Die Hard 3 in New York City, their scavenger hunt. I mean, this is. <gasps> it's weird. And they, they don't have their money yet, right? So Dr. Condon finds this note after he goes on the scavenger hunt. And that note then instructs him to go to Woodlawn Cemetery and meet with a man who called himself John. This is beyond weird. It's very cloak and dagger, right? So at this clandestine meeting, John and Dr. Condren discuss payment in exchange for the baby. So now we're finally getting somewhere, right? But Dr. Condren tells him that he's going to need a token to prove that they actually have Charles Jr. Smart. Yeah, absolutely. So the two men part ways and Dr. Condren, you know what? I think I said Dr. Condren. I think it's Dr. Condon. (laughs) Anyway, sorry. The two men part ways, and Dr. Condon continues to run advertisements in the newspaper, urging further contact and reiterating that the Lindberghs are willing to pay the ransom in exchange for their son. So four days later, a set of baby's pajamas, which, side note, the FBI refers to as a baby's sleeping suit, and I think that's adorable, shows up. And these pajamas were delivered to Dr. Condon, along with, get this, a seventh ransom note. What the heck? Now, Charles and Ann Lindbergh recognize the pajamas, and they think that this is proof enough that the kidnappers have their son. So Dr. Condon continues to advertise in the newspaper, trying to coordinate, you know, an exchange of money for the baby. So five days after that, on March 21st, we are now 21 days into this kidnapping, an eighth ransom note arrives at Dr. Condon's, and it states that the kidnappers are insisting on complete compliance and indicates that the kidnapping had been planned for over a year. Okay, that's... Remember, they just moved into that brand new house. Uh-huh. I'm uh-huh. Sorry. Yeah, I, I, no, I, there's a lot of fishiness about that. Okay. 
So fast forward another few days to March 29th, and the baby's nanny, Betty Gow, finds the baby's thumb guard, which was he was wearing the night of the kidnapping, near the entrance to the Lindbergh estate. Now, Wait. I'm assuming, I'm okay. sorry, yeah. What is that? I'm assuming like he was sucking on his thumb and it was something they put over his okay. thumb. That's, that's a, I'm like a thumb guard, mm-hmm. like okay. not a pacifier, but something. That makes sense. Yeah, that's, I'm just guessing, but I think that's probably what it was. Were you a thumb sucker? No, were you? Yeah. Big time. Hmm. No, not me, oh, nor no. any of my kids. Oh, I'm the only one. Were your kids thumb suckers? No. Hmm. I used that pacifier like it was going out of business. I was like, oh, you're unhappy? Here you go. Yep. I had Same. no problem with that. Same. Okay. So Betty Gal finds this baby's thumb guard. And then the following day on March 30th, Dr. Condon receives yet another ransom note. Making this, you guys, the ninth communication from the kidnappers. And this note threatens to increase the ransom to $100,000. A day later, he receives the 10th note, which instructs him to have the funds ready by the following evening, April 2nd. So the night of the 2nd comes, and a taxi driver shows up again and delivers the 11th note to Dr. Condon. Now, I should note here that both taxi drivers involved were questioned and didn't know the identity of the person giving them the note. And much like the note he received from the last taxi driver, this one sends him on a scavenger hunt. Following instructions in the 11th note, he finds the 12th note under a stone in front of a greenhouse at 3225 East Tremont Avenue in the Bronx. That note gives him instructions on where to meet so-called John again, and Dr. Condon gives John $50,000 in exchange for a receipt and yet another note, this one the 13th which tells him that he can find the child on a boat named Nellie near Martha's Vineyard. Now, it should come as no surprise to you all that despite an intensive search, no baby was found in or around Martha's Vineyard. A little over a month later, on May 12, 1932, the body of the kidnapped baby was accidentally found by a truck driver, partially buried and badly decomposed about four and a half miles southeast of the Lindbergh home. His head had unfortunately been crushed in, and there was a hole in the skull. Some of his body parts were also missing. I mean, I knew that he was killed, but still heartbreaking. It is. It's hard to hear the details, for sure. And according to the coroner, they think he had been dead for about two months, and he died from a blow to the head. So he's probably dead from the beginning, and the whole timeline for the ransom notes that you just went through was about two months? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So, I mean, he'd probably been dead from day one. Okay, yeah. And it sounds like his body may have been in the same place since day one. Yes, that is correct. And we'll get to that a little bit more and some of the theories about mm, what happened. Yeah. But a lot of people believe he was buried probably that same day. Wow. So... Given that, let's talk about what evidence the authorities discovered and what they did to track down the person they believe is behind the crime. So first, they had a ladder that was left propped outside of the Lindbergh house. It went straight from the ground to the window of the baby's room. And apparently the day of the kidnapping had been rainy and they found muddy footprints in the nursery as well as footprints in the mud at the bottom of the ladder. But neither were clear enough to sort of decipher, like, what size or type of shoe 
it was, which, mm-hmm. you know. And then they have all these written ransom notes, like what, 12 or 13 of them, several of which they can use to compare handwriting or, you know, they sift through them for additional clues, much like, you know, in the John Benet right. John, John Ramsey mm-hmm. case. Um, now, they also have this guy, John, who Dr. Condon says, you know, I could identify if I saw him again. And so he works with a sketch artist to draw a photo of this so-called John guy. And maybe most importantly, they have the money that Dr. Condon handed over to John, which obviously they had marked. Mm. Now, this is where it gets really fascinating. And I had to reach out to Mel for some more information on this. But the president around this time did a proclamation. He was requiring the return to the Treasury of all gold and gold certificates And that was really a valuable aid in this case. And as much as $40,000 of the ransom money had been paid in gold certificates, not cash. And at the time of the proclamation, a large portion of this money was still known to be outstanding. This, therefore, they really emphasize like this stage of the investigation. Yeah, you you guys know I like a little bit of history. Um, and for those of you who also like that, since the 1800s, the U.S. was backed by a monetary system where the currency was actually backed by gold. But around the 1930s, the Great Depression, of course, resulted in people hoarding gold. So when new President Roosevelt came into power in 1934, he issued a proclamation that formally suspended the gold standard. The proclamation prohibited exports of gold and prohibited the Treasury and financial institutions from converting currency and deposits into gold coins and ingots. As part of this, he ordered all the gold coins and the gold certificates in denominations of more than 100 to be turned in for other money. So all of this was kind of going on at the time. It was very public and, you know, well-known. Very interesting. Yeah. And so it's because of this presidential order that someone was caught and prosecuted for the kidnapping and murder of Charles Lindbergh Jr. In August and September of that year, the gold certificates started being used in and around the towns of Yorkville and Harlem, New York. A grocery store owner who thought it was suspicious that he was paid in a gold certificate wrote down the license plate number of the person who paid him with them. And that's how the police located Bruno Richard Hauptman, who lived at 1279 East 222nd Street in the Bronx. That was really clever, that store owner. Absolutely. And Richard, as he went by in America, was actually born in Germany, served in World War I, and was a petty criminal spending several stints in prison. He illegally immigrated to the United States as a stowaway, um, actually only succeeding on his third attempt after having been previously found and sent back to Germany twice. Yeah, he kept uh, stowing away on different boats and they would find him, send him back. Now, I couldn't find anything on what happened to the property that the Hotmans lived in, though there is a lot written about his wife's insistence until the day she died in her late 90s that he was innocent. But I did find a leak, thanks to a deep dive on Reddit, to Dr. Condon's house. And as best I can tell, the property at 2974 Decatur Avenue in the Bronx last sold in 2016 for $475,000. The two-story Victorian-style property is a little over 2,500 square feet, and recent estimates show it's valued somewhere between seven fifty dollars and $800,000. So if you're a history lover like Mel and her family, this little piece of history could be yours. You know, 
and, and when I first read the story, I was like, are we sure that he wasn't involved? Like, I mean, it, it just seemed like he was really inserting himself into this crime. But I, I guess he was investigated. And Yeah, just... there's really no evidence that, you know, the retired principal was, you know, a party to the crime. And the case against Hopman seems pretty tight to me when you lay out all of the facts. So they found a gasoline can in his garage, which was stuffed with these gold certificates matching the certificates paid out in the ransom. Dr. Condon positively identified him as the man he knew as John, who had met with him twice during negotiations. Although, to be fair, at a police lineup, he originally said that Hopton was not the John he had met. So he did change his story. Yeah, I'm always a little, a little suspect when you're on trial and you're like, yeah, now this is the person. Right. And then a handwriting comparison of Hopman and the ransom notes was a solid match. We've posted a side-by-side comparison of his handwriting with writing on the notes on our socials and website. So y'all be sure to check those out. I mean, I'm not a handwriting expert by any means, but they do look really similar. Now, Hopton also spent time in prison for robbery. And shortly after the kidnapping, he gave up his career in carpentry and became a day trader, which would indicate that maybe he had come into some money. Additionally, tool marks on the ladder used outside of the Lindbergh house matched tools owned by Hopman, And some of the wood used to make the ladder matched wood flooring used in Hopman's attic. Mm-hmm. The side note, I'm not really sure how they actually determined that in the 1930s. <laughs> I read that they called something called a wood technologist to testify in the trial. Yeah. I think that's a little suspect. What do you think, Alana? Yeah, it sounds interesting. Yeah. We don't have those now, so. Yeah, I'm sure it's like one of those like pieces of quote unquote technology mm-hmm. that they've later said. Like, right. Like that's stupid. Yeah. Like <laughs> didn't they use bite marks for a long time and then they're like, oh, wait, this is not they, they actually. don't use that anymore? I don't think so. I didn't know that. Somebody's going to write in and tell us I'm wrong. Yeah, But there's a lot of things. You know, that sounds, this wood technologist sounds a little suspect to me. But last but not least, Dr. Condon's telephone number and address were found scrawled on a doorframe inside a closet at Hopman's house. What? Uh Uh-huh. No. I can see your face. Mm -hmm. You think he was framed. What? No. (laughs) You hadn't considered that? (laughs) No. No. All right. Well, Elena, it's with this evidence, albeit circumstantial, that he was swiftly convicted and sentenced to death by electrocution. The death penalty was enforced on April 3rd, 1936, four years after the kidnapping of Lindbergh baby. That was really fast. Yeah. That appeals process was faster back then, I guess, or didn't exist. I don't know. Yeah. Wow. Wait. Okay. Hold on. So you think that he framed Dr. Condon or is trying to frame Dr. Condon? I think it's possible that somebody framed Hopman, who was the one arrested and convicted right. by writing. I mean, who writes a phone number and an address on a doorframe? Right. Why wouldn't you write it on uh, a piece of well, paper? Yeah, that's true. I don't know. I yeah. think it's sketchy. Okay. I see what you're saying now. All right. So I want to tell you what happened to the Lindbergh house first. But given all of this that we just talked about, don't let me forget to tell you about some of the crazier conspiracy theories in this uh, case. We love conspiracy theories. That'd be great. Tell us about the house first. They they'd just moved in, right? That's right. So they had just moved in. And during the investigation, all of the investigators actually moved into the house, too, making it sort of like their command central. 
After Charles identified his son's body, they moved out of the house and never returned. Another sort of throwback to the JonBenet mm-hmm. Ramsey case. They mm-hmm. did the same thing. And so at first they lived with Anne's parents in a neighboring town, and then they ended up moving abroad to escape this constant attention that they result, you know, that they had sort of received as a result of this case. A year after the kidnapping in June 1933, Anne wrote that the house would be turned over to a board of trustees, and she named it Highfields, saying that the name carried some sort of secret meaning. One biographer has speculated that it commemorates the young Lindbergh's special greeting to his father. And in 1941, the home was conveyed to the state of New Jersey by the Highfields Association in memory of Charles Lindbergh, Jr. It has been used since July 1, 1952, as a juvenile rehabilitation center by the New Jersey Department of Corrections. And ladies, the home is still used as a juvenile rehabilitation center to this day, although now it serves girls exclusively. Okay, so that was the house. Let's get back to these conspiracy Mm -hmm. theories. Let's start with maybe the oldest and the newest conspiracy theory on this case. As recently as this year, retired judge and true crime author Lisa Perlman has a theory that Charles Lindbergh faked the kidnapping to cover up an even more gruesome crime. She asserts that Lindbergh was working in conjunction with French biologist Alexis Carroll to study his sickly son. As it turns out, Lindbergh was a proponent of eugenics and also a Nazi supporter. So that sort of makes sense because, you know, eugenics is essentially the science of promoting desirable qualities in the human race, typically through some sort of controlled breeding. That sounds like something the Nazis would promote. And yeah, and did promote, right? So Perlman says that Dr. Carroll operated on baby Lindbergh probably while his father was present, and she points to medical records, which she says indicate that his carotid and thyroid were removed. She believes that the baby died on the operating table and a kidnapping was used to cover up this gruesome experiment. I mean, that seems really far-fetched, but also weird that she's writing a book about it just this year. Yeah, um... But, you know, it is true that there is evidence that baby Lindbergh had a rickets-like disease that affected the development of strong bones. So Charles Lindbergh kept a lot of the secret. And so we don't necessarily know all the facts, but there is some evidence in some historical records that the baby did have uh, an illness and did have some deformities and that he prevented the authorities from speaking to the actual child's nurse who knew the baby the best. And they had a very cursory autopsy. And he had his son uh, pretty quickly cremated and the ashes scattered. So I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised that the murder was accidental during the course of the kidnapping, um, especially if the son's condition was true. Yeah, you're right. Um, You know, when when we were in this two-month period or one-month period where we were getting all these ransom notes, they actually published in the paper what the baby's daily diet was because he had, like, all these dietary restrictions. And, of course, mom wanted to make sure he was being fed properly. So he he definitely had some health issues. Um, now, a Rutgers history professor, Lloyd Gartner, who has researched the crime extensively, wrote that, quote, What we know about Lindbergh's character is his desire to spread his healthy genes and his belief in the eugenics movement, which goes hand-in-hand with his pro-German feelings before the war. His secret affairs starting in 1957 with three women in Germany, two of them sisters, 
which led to seven children besides the six he had with his wife, are reminiscent of an experiment. So are you saying that one of the theories is that he killed his own son because he had a genetic weakness? I mean, essentially, yeah, that's that's exactly right. Or maybe it's possible that it was the result of like some sort of failed surgery to understand the genetic condition mm, okay. that went wrong. Okay. I mean, it could go either way. Mm-hmm. Um, have y'all ever watched The Man in the High Castle on Amazon Prime? Mm-hmm. I loved it. Yeah. So good. Um, if you haven't seen it, the premise of the show is that the United States did not win World War II. And so as a result, our country is divided into an area controlled by Japan, a Nazi-controlled area, and then a buffer zone sort of in between the two. It, it's fascinating. It sounds like it. Um, anyway, in that series, a man who works for the Nazis finds out that his own son has a genetic condition. And the family doctor tells them that unless he personally administers this, like, injection to euthanize his son— He's going to report the disease to the authorities. So like this belief in eugenics as like the way to save the world was really prevalent. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. You know, Charles Lindbergh is definitely a very controversial figure nowadays Um, and and nothing to do with the fact that his son, you know, was uh, killed. I mean, that's horrid. You know, it doesn't matter who the parent is. And he was such an instrumental figure to flight. in this country, the well, not even in this country. I mean, it changed flight and transport, transportation, communications across the world. And so, on one hand, you know, he has this really amazing legacy, but then there's this other side of him that is very awful. You know, eugenics, pro Germany, uh, affairs with multiple women, including sisters. Yeah, it, I, we want to be very. Um, fair when we're reporting about this man and this history. Another theory is that not Richard Hopman, but rather his partner, Isidore Fish, was behind the crime. So after he gave up carpentry, Richard went and worked with Isidore to trade stocks. We'd already talked about that, right? And so Hopman always claimed that he was innocent. And he stated that those gold certificates found in his garage were left in a shoebox by Isidore, who had previously returned to Europe. And there is some corroborating evidence that was suppressed during the trial. Isidore, who died of tuberculosis back in Germany, had paid for his ticket with a gold certificate. And perhaps coincidentally, Fish had applied for a passport the same day the baby's body was discovered. Finally, in 2012, there was a book published, Cemetery John, the undiscovered mastermind of the Lindbergh kidnapping. So in it, the author proposes that there was actually a different mastermind behind the crime. Based upon a theory that his father, who as a 15-year-old boy overheard his neighbor, John Knoll, speaking with several other German men in a way that he later believed referenced the kidnapping before it occurred. As an, as, as an adult, he went on and researched the story and he worked with FBI profilers and he came across evidence that he proposes shows that John Knoll was the cemetery John figure in the case the kidnapper, you know, who called himself John and collected that $50,000 ransom in a Bronx cemetery, and probably a co-conspirator of the crime with Hopman. Now, no actually much more closely resembled that early description of this, you know, John guy. And additionally, modern handwriting experts tied his handwriting to a 95% match to the ransom notes. Also, when the manhunt for the kidnappers began, Noel left the area 
and he later traveled to Europe with his wife aboard a luxury liner SS Manhattan just three weeks before the start of the Hotman trial and returned to the States only after Hotman's conviction and sentencing. No one knew where his money came from as he had previously worked as an uneducated deli clerk. Mm. Okay, so either way, there's a good amount of evidence that while Richard Hauptman probably was involved in the crime, he also most likely had a co-conspirator. For example, there were two sets of footprints, even though they couldn't really tell lots of information about them, found under the ladder that, remember that's that kind of homemade ladder that had been left at the scene of the crime. And this was a second story window that the nursery was. And so honestly, I mean, looking at it, it seems to me it would have most likely required two men to carry this custom two-story ladder to the house and hold it while one person actually climbed up the ladder, retrieved the baby, and carried back down. And then since at that point in time, um, one of them had to be holding the baby. They then decided to leave the ladder because they could no longer had two people to carry the ladder. So I don't know. I'm actually curious and couldn't find any details also on how they found the Lindenberg estate, considering it was so remote and they had just moved into it. I don't know. Like these, all these people lived in, you know, uh, the Bronx or in New York. And this was, you know, fairly rural um, uh, New Jersey. And while the way the crow flies, it's not that far by the, you know, by the uh, traffic and car speeds of that day, it was several hours away. I don't know. So I feel like there's something suspect there. And I feel like that there probably was a couple people involved. I was wondering the same thing, because Heather, you said that you would have had to travel down a windy road to find it, right? Yeah, absolutely. That indicates that whoever took the baby knew where the house was located. Did they ever find any connection between the construction workers on the home and Hopman, who was a carpenter? Yeah, no, not that I could find, Elena, um, but that would absolutely make some sense, right? Like, who knows about this house, all the people that have been building it, even if it's just word of mouth, Mm -hmm. like talking to your buddies about, hey, I've been working on this big project. These people must have some money. Mm-hmm. Um, but get this, you guys. Another theory is that the Lindbergh baby isn't really dead at all. What? They found the baby's body, though. They did. And it was identified by Charles Lindbergh, who took no longer than 90 seconds to identify the body. And he identified it by these toes that were sort of like overlapping on his foot. Um, and then he immediately ordered the body cremated. And several men over the years that bear a striking resemblance to Charles Lindbergh have claimed to be the actual Lindbergh baby. However, DNA testing now allows us to check out that fact. And so far, you know, it's shown that none of them are actually related to the Lindbergh family. So weird. There's a lot of weird here. But thank you, Heather, for bringing to light a story that while on like on one hand, you know, it's very famous, like we all kind of know about it. Um on the other hand, I, I realized I didn't actually know very much about it at all. Um, the story continues to fascinate people in that, you know, that familiar way that anything that has to do with celebrities has like an oversized publicity about it. Um, you know, while we were recent researching it, I found there's actually an online Lindeberg kidnapping discussion message board that is still active today with people trading conspiracies and uh, linking to different kind of evidence that they say fits, you know, their theories of the crime. So, yeah, it's, it, it still continues 100 years later to uh, really kind of get into people's psyche. And we're all interested in a, a good true crime story. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, um, you know, we mentioned we found some 
links and some interesting information on Reddit. We've actually created a Reddit page or would you call it a page, a profile? I don't know. I'm not Reddit <laughs> literate um, for Crime Estate Podcast because there are so many interesting theories and ideas and pieces of information on Reddit. So um, if you are a fan of Reddit, I'm like I said, I'm new to it. We're sort of getting used to it, but um, definitely check us out there and share some of our, our podcasts with some of your favorite Reddit conspiracy pages. Um, and then, of course, should we remind everybody to leave us a five star review? And when you do that, tell us why you think you should be part of our first live Zoom mini-sode. We are really looking forward to this. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. And uh, Elena, maybe at the end of this episode, you can drop some of the fun things that you're going to leave on the cutting room floor for this Gosh. episode. Oh, we've that's could, a good idea. Yeah, we, we've got some fun stuff. So um, if you like hanging out with us, you're going to like hanging out with us live even more. I know. So. You think we sound so polished, and I say that with big air quotes. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, wait until you hear the dumb things that we say and that we uh, have to edit out. Yeah. So go leave a five-star review, tell your friends, and we'll look forward to seeing you maybe on our first live Zoom mini-sode. Thanks. Bye. 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 Elena, you've got a look on your face, and I don't know what it is. We can cut this, but the snatch racket? <laughs> What does that mean? Something else other than what I'm thinking it means? Yeah, I think yeah. it's like snatching children. Oh, yes. okay. Oh, it's like, like a racket. Okay, like, I got it. Okay, like, like a criminal racket. <laughs> okay, okay. Then it, it does. It, then you have yeah. such a dirty mind. <laughs> wow, I did not even go there. My bad. Okay, go ahead. But I, I enjoy the facial expression. <laughs> that same. Neither of my kids would do one. I would be trying. Like, Suck it. Please. Oh gosh. <laughs> Is that what you were like? <laughs> You're such a snatch racket. <laughs> hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our Crime Estate family. If you're curious about today's featured Crime Estate, you can find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimeestate.com or on Facebook and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a Crime Estate we should cover? Let us know. Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week.